yes, your heart will definitely go on, and so should your ears here in this podcast today. Hi, everybody. My name is Tony Mazur. Welcome on in, or should I say welcome aboard to the Check Your Brain podcast. Here, wherever you are listening to this, wherever you get your podcast on Spotify, Odyssey, uh, Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Locals, all over the place. I try to spread myself all across the, the fruited plain or across the deep sea of podcasts nowadays. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the Titanic. And when I say a little bit, we're going to talk a lot. We're going to talk the facts and fiction that you may or may not know. Um, A lot of cool stuff here in this podcast. And my guest today is Bill Willard. He's an instructor of physics at Asheville Buncombe Technical College. And uh, he is an expert on all things about the Titanic. And uh, Bill, thanks thanks for doing this. I appreciate this. Glad to do it, Tony. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I remembered back in the day, of course, you know, we're in the nostalgia period of American life, of it, the, the, the whole period of uh, what's going on nowadays of nostalgia, that we all go back in time and we're like, hey, you know what, things were better, things were, you start, wa-. but it's, it's weird to romanticize about a time of a fictional movie, but right now, as we speak, as we're doing this podcast, there are movie theaters right now playing Titanic and people are filling. It's one of the few times people are going back to the movie theaters and they're going to see a movie that came out over 25 years ago on a story that's now what we're, we're going on, what, 110 years with the, with what happened. I believe it was a little bit over 110 years. So um, I remember when I was in school, we were hearing about Bob Ballard and uh, in the discovery of the Titanic in the late 1980s and, uh, it was uh, it was a really fascinating because again I remember our our teachers were like okay you know the movie but let's try to this is a huge historical moment so let's talk history let's talk about the Titanic and first of all I guess my first question is what got you interested in this like what is this what is your background that got you into becoming an expert and how does one become an expert on something like this read uh, don't watch YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> There's so many bogus ones out there. Uh, the things that I did was I began by reading. Then I began to talk to other experts. Um, I've been to a lot of the historical places. I've talked to a lot of family members. Um, but I've listened to a lot of the recognized experts. And I've avoided. Uh, there's a TikTok going around right now where some girl is bringing up a theory that was disproved in the 1990s but she's awakened a generation of the unknowing. Um, But study, I started reading A Night to Remember when I was in school, and that was in 1975. So I'm going on 48 years this year of researching Titanic. Um, I read everything that I could. And lo and behold, like you said, in 1985 and 86, it was discovered and explored. And that opened up a, a, a flood of questions for me. One of the big specials that came out was the Nat Geo special where Ballard discovers Titanic. And everybody showed that in their classroom because of the amazing footage. And uh, my love just grew. My passion grew. In 2018, uh, my mom had given me a present. She had given me a year subscription to Ancestry. Dot com. She was a, a subscriber, and I'll have to say that's one of the most addicting things in the world that I've ever <laughs> been a part of. 
I'd sit down and work for 30 minutes. I'd look up at the clock and I've been there four and a half hours. And uh, there was a survivor of Titanic named Constance Willard. And so nobody in my Willard family had ever heard of any connection to this. So I thought I would trace her genealogy. So I followed her Willard line back to a small village in England, Horsmonden, Kent, England, as a matter of fact. And I happened to know that was where mine was from as well. So I found a common ancestor and it was just five years ago that I found out I had a cousin on board. It's a distant cousin. Wow. But it was still a relative. Um, I was a part of two expeditions to the wreck site in 1996 as an observer. They attempted to raise this thing that's behind me on my, my background here called the big piece. And when I went back in 1998, I was a part of the expedition team. I built a, a small camera system, an ROV, a remote operated vehicle designed to go into the small areas. And we had a three-year plan of three expeditions that we were going to do. First time we were going to test it. The second time we were going to go into the nooks and crannies. And the third time we were going to try some of the interior recovery. Uh, but in 98, we did recover this big piece. Um, and that's what I'm involved with currently as we're having the 25th anniversary in August of the raising of the big piece. We're doing a con big conference in uh, Las Vegas at the Luxor. It's three days, 9th, 10th, and 11th of August. Anybody's invited. Two of the days will be the expedition teams and Titanic family members talking about their stories. The third day, we're, we're inviting movie cast from this fantastic Cameron film. And the third day will be them talking about their experience with the movie and signing autographs and meeting friends. Um, we're only gonna have 250 seats available due to the size of our conference room. But it's uh, that's what we're pushing for. And that's what we're going to is to have a fantastic three days in Las Vegas where we share all three dimensions, the history with the family members, the recovery with the expedition teams, and the culture, including um, the Cameron movie. It makes sense because of all the large bodies of water Las Vegas has. <laughs> I'm just, I'm it, it, it's funny when I think of Las Vegas and you think of the Titanic, it's one of the last places, but no, it's great. There, you don't have to worry about icebergs out there. To, There's my, a pirate I, ship out there I, we might could go explore. Th this is true. Absolutely. So, uh, I, so I've, I've been fascinated when it comes to Titanics and shipwrecks. I'm so I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, we have the Great Lakes. I've been to the um, Mariners, old Mariners Church, which they call the Maritime Sailors Cathedral in the Gordon Lightfoot song. And I am fascinated. You mentioned 1975. I'm fascinated by the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there's something almost inherent in us who live in this Great Lakes region where we hear about tales of shipwrecks. And it, uh, it, because you know, there's a lot of museums up in the Great Lakes that uh, you can go check out. And uh, of course, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald, what made that one fascinating was it was a really a, uh, the final voyage of this large ship that was going to be docked in Ohio, it was going to be dropped off in Toledo, and uh, with all the iron ore pellets that they had, and it was going to dock for the winter in Cleveland. And you know, Gordon Lightfoot took his uh, a little bit of creative license, but he tried to keep close to what ended up happening. Now, of course, the James Cameron film that you can't necessarily make a full, you know, a, a list big budget movie over what's essentially a documentary. So you have to inject a few things. 
But what would you say that when you watch the movie that they did right, whether it was stylistically, uh, any factoids, anything where you could actually look it up and go like, no, that actually did happen. They just put it in a certain place in the movie. What 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 would you say are some of the facts that you did see when it when the movie came out that you were like, all right, they they did this justice. This was pretty good. For many years, a group of us have referred to the Cameron movie as Jack and Rose on the Love Boat. Um, <laughs> there's there's no Isaac or Captain Steubing, though. No Isaac, no Captain Steubing. Um, if you take out the Jack and the Rose story, it's like you said, you're not going to draw in $4 billion worth of tickets just on a historical documentary about Titanic at the movie theaters. So when Cameron injected that love story into it, he had made it attractive to the young kid, the younger audience, the teens, the older teens, the young twenties, and they went in droves. If you take out the Jack and the Rose and the Cal Hockley elements of the movie, Cameron went to great detailing to get great trouble to get in, you know, good details. For example, the carpet company that made his model for his, his movie was the same carpet company that made the original Titanic carpets from the same patterns they made his. Um, plateware, lamps, all those things he tried to get from the original companies, just make replicas of the original so that we have, uh, he had historical accuracy. Um, one of the interesting notes for me one of the tallest people on the ship was John Jacob Astor, and he was about 6'3". And the actor that played John Jacob Astor was Eric Braden. My generation remembers Eric Braden from the, the great TV show Rat Patrol in the 60s. And then, of course, he's been Victor, I think, on The Young and the Restless. All your female listeners, I apologize. <laughs> I'm not a soap opera person. I think it's he's Victor on The Young and the Restless. Eric Braden, though, is only 5'10". So everything is smaller than the real ship was. And um, I was a member of a historical group that was offered a chance to come and audition for extras. And I thought, yes, you know, that's living a dream. You've been researching this thing for many years. And now you've got a chance to go and maybe do a, you know, be somebody in a background just walking around in what is the ultimate Titanic movie of this generation for sure. Uh, the bad part was, is they didn't want anybody taller than 5'10". I'm 6'3". I'm 6'3 six, six, and a half back in my college football days. And so I said, well, maybe I can hunker down and try to do it that way. And it just would never work. I would, I would not be able to do that. But that was, a, I've still got my invitation to come and audition um, and send in information to, to possibly be an extra. But he went to great detail. There's one scene, for example, where it shows a young boy and he takes a top and he spins it on the deck. And behind him, Jack goes and he borrows a jacket so that he can look nice while walking in first class. That's from an actual photograph that was taken on board the ship by Father Francis Brown. And it's Douglas Spedden from the state of Maine. And his father is in the picture. And uh, he's actually doing that. And Cameron recreated that image. And um, he did that several times. He had several things that really did occur. He placed in. Jack Thayer was a Titanic survivor. He was 17 years old. And what Jack did was he and a friend jumped in the water. 
and they were going to swim to a lifeboat. They thought that would be a smart way. You know, the lifeboats were not extremely distant at that moment, that that might be a way that they could be saved. Uh, as he swam through the water, um, he lost his friend. His friend did not deal with the cold as well as he did. He turned around and he looked back at the ship and he's got this large ship sitting like this in the water at an angle about like this. I'm using a TV remote because mm -hmm. my little ship's over on the mantle. But he said you could see the lights coming down the side of Titanic and then continue on underwater. You could see the lights and you could see people running by the portholes, even though the that part was underwater. But Jack Thayer is the one that said, he was asked in an inquiry, what did it feel like when you hit the water? He said, it feels like a thousand knives stabbing me all over my body. And Cameron used that quote for the Jack scene. Wow. So he, he enlisted several prominent historians. One was Don Lynch. One was Ken Marshall. Um, Ed and Karen Kamuda were there from the Titanic Historical Society. Um, and he really wanted to do honor to the true story. So, yeah, because that's that was the first thing when people would say it's like, ah, they Hollywooded it up. But when you do have a director like James Cameron and we've seen some of the especially the Avatar, I mean, how long did it take from Titanic to Avatar and then the next Avatar? The amount of detail that went in uh, is is really fascinating. Let's talk about the ship in general. You were mentioning certain things uh, that were that, that made it distinct. But what made it distinct for uh, the 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 wreck happened in 1912 but what made it this the mystique of the titanic uh from from back in the day like uh the the amenities that were very modern at the time that of course they you know look kind of kitschy and whatever by today's or even you know maybe a half a century ago standards but what made this ship something just like the really the uh, glory of the seas like what what was it white star was competing with um, the owner of ships like the Lusitania and the Mauritania um, for the um, passenger traffic coming from Europe to America. The Mauritania and that group focused more on speed. So Bruce Ismay decided we're gonna focus on luxury and try to include some speed in there as well. The accommodations in, in Olympic and Titanic were second to none. Um, one group has said that third class on Titanic was better than second class on most ships, that it was that luxurious. They had all the amenities that all the, the, the rich, the elite, um, could ask for. And it was the, um, the millionaire special is one of the things it was called. And on its maiden voyage, this first voyage, they had a lot of prominent people on board. And the reason it gathered so much of an aura about it was because if anything could go wrong on that first trip, it did. And it, um, the ship foundered and it went from sailing the North Atlantic into sailing into legend. Yeah, well, and it, I read somewhere there was about 100,000 people who watched the maiden voyage launch, right? Not for Titanic. There was a... Um, a smaller number than usual. The larger, the first ship that was launched was the Olympic. Oh, and okay. That ship had all the fanfare, and Titanic was like, okay, this is the second one. This one's pretty cool. And 
Um, that led to a huge cultural error. Um, when Olympic was launched, they took tons of pictures of Olympic. And Olympic is a little different in Titanic in the exterior design. A, a promenade is covered, for example, whereas mm. on the other ship, it's not. And so when Titanic sank, the news agencies are looking for every picture they can find, and there's not hardly any available. So they took the Olympic pictures and said, this is Titanic. Oh, okay. Interesting. So all these people are going, this is what Titanic really looks like. So on the bottom of the ocean, it's not Titanic, it's Olympic. Really? Okay. And they, that's where it led to what is not commonly known as switch theory, that the ships were switched and it's Olympic on the bottom of the ocean. And so that was a great big, huge bubble caused in the culture. Uh, we know it's Titanic down there. Pieces that my group recovered has has a number four hundred one on the marked on them in many different places, and four hundred one was Titanic's number. Four hundred was Olympic's number. And when they dismantled Olympic in nineteen thirty eight, a lot of those pieces still have their four hundred on it. So, no, the ships were not switched. I, I find it amazing. I'm uh, I have this little pack of Kleenex here. Well. You can call it Kleenex. You can call it tissue. It's the same thing. But we just call it. It's like, oh, like, give me a Kleenex, even if it's not Kleenex. So how a name takes on a life of its own. Titanic has turned into a, like a verb, has turned into an adjective to describe, a, a, for example, like if something's big, it's like, oh, this is Titanic. Or so, uh, Aaron Judge had a Titanic home run the other night for the Yankees. So where did this name come from? The original names were meant to display size and strength and Olympic and Titanic. And the third ship after Titanic sinking was called Britannic. That was meant to bring in some pride back in the nation and things like that. So that's where they were heading with those names. Um, Titanic's engines that they have are still the largest engines built for a ship. Uh, they started re-engineering the engine after Titanic's and uh, they were able to make them smaller and a bit more efficient. So those two engines sitting on the bottom of the North Atlantic are still the largest engines ever built. And then the amount of coal I'm assuming in order to power these beasts. <laughs> thousands and thousands of tons. They had uh, crew members called trimmers and the trimmer's job was to go in these coal bins where all the coal is, you know, eight decks high. And their job is to try to even the sides so that the ship would maintain, you know, neutrality. It wouldn't list to one side or the other. And so these trimmers would climb down in the coal bins and that's what they would do. And uh, there's a lot of coal on the bottom of the ocean. There's still some coal inside the bow. And, uh, the company that recovers, RMS Titanic Incorporated, they're now based outside of Atlanta, um, were given and awarded the salver rights in a Norfolk Admiralty Court. And they were given permission since coal is technically not an artifact, it's, it's, uh, it's something more indiscreet. Um, they were allowed to sell pieces of coal to help finance their expeditions. And so people were buying, you know, about the size of a quarter um, pieces like that. And um, it helped them fund some of their research. Okay. 
Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, it, getting back to what I mentioned, the Edmund Fitzgerald, and there's the, the again, the line, the song that says uh, the searchers all said they would have made Whitefish Bay if they put 15 more miles behind her. And the Edmund Fitzgerald was actually a, there was another freighter who was on Lake Superior at the time that was a little bit ahead and they lost radio signal pretty quick. And then that was it. They didn't hear anything. Um, did, were there any other ships in the area that may have been able to either, you know, uh, sound the alarm bells that there might be, you know, icebergs or anything or any issues when they did eventually make contact? Was there a possibility that another ship would have been able to be contacted nearby in those days? Definitely. Uh, historical evidence shows that Titanic did receive ice warnings. Now, they were taking a more southerly route, which is typically um, iceberg free. It was at least more clear of icebergs at that time. And so when they would get an iceberg warning, they would go into the map room and they would plot where these ice warnings were found. Um, there was one that supposedly arrived that had was never delivered to the bridge the last evening. That may have made a difference. Um, as soon as the ship struck the iceberg and it was determined that the ship was going to founder, they sent out the CQD, come quickly distressed, and then later used SOS, which was a, a brand new term on the, on the Marconi. They were sending it out by Morse code. There was a ship on the horizon. The lights could be seen. Several different survivors saw those lights. Uh, it was traditional in those days to shut the system off at 11 o'clock. Um, so people went to bed, the ship stopped moving, they woke up the next morning, but Titanic was going to continue to steam. They thought they had clear seas. Um, it just so happened they had turned off the Marconi on the Carpathia, that was the rescue ship. And one of the other officers, he decided, do you mind if I listen in? I'm trying to pick up a little bit on the Morse code. He says, help yourself. So Harold Cottom goes over and he puts the earpiece up to see, and he's listening to all the traffic coming from Titanic and who it's, you know, buy stocks, look forward to seeing you in New York and tell family member, hello, those kind of things. They were sending a lot of those types of telegrams. Um, and then all of a sudden Cottom is listening and he hears the CQD and I can almost envision his face going from what he was listening to, to this immediate distress cry that Titanic is sinking. So he was able very quickly to write down the coordinates and he goes flying up and he wakes up the captain of the Carpathia. And um, the captain immediately says, are you sure? And he said, yes, sir. And, you know, the captain could have been upset, but he, he reacted about as incredibly as a captain could act. He said, go back, find out all you can, tell them we're on our way, set the course to go northwest. I'll give you the exact course in just a moment. And he starts telling orders for his officers immediately to take care. Carpathia took four hours. They steamed over their, their top speed. They were, they were pushing it and to get there as quickly as possible. This other ship that was on the horizon was the Californian. Californian reported in their logs that they saw Titanic's white rockets. Um, in that day, there was no um, synthesis between all these groups. White rockets for one company might mean we're stopping for the night. 
For another company, it might mean distress. For another company, it might mean I see you behind our radios. They were different signals. So there was no coordination there. So they didn't think there was an emergency. So they cut everything off and went back to sleep. And that morning when they woke up, they found what had happened. And, you know, of course, they contacted Carpathia and said, can we assist? And the Carpathia captain said, we've done everything that we can. Wow. And um, had Californian responded immediately, uh, it would have taken them a little while to get there. They were about 15 miles away. Um, they would have, you know, crank your engines up, get started, start moving. Um, but they would have had extra lifeboats. They would have been able to have ferried people over. And um, yes, I think more would have been saved. So this was, it was basically too late at this point when, you know, here's the, here's an iceberg. The ship is heading towards it. There's no way of getting out. How, what would you say the margin for error was that if somebody were able to find that quickly and that they were able to kind of steer off and avoid it, uh, how much wiggle room would they have had? Because like I said, it, it was too late at that point that they ended up hitting the iceberg and we know the story that how much more that if they were able to spot it, that they'd be able to, oh, we got to got to take a right, got to take a left, get got to get it away from this. How much wiggle room would they have been able to have? There's been a lot of studies on that very question. How much farther back time-wise would they have needed to avoid the iceberg? And the answers range from three minutes to 10 minutes. Uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, an enormous ship, thousands of tons, and it's going to turn based on a small rudder. That's all it has. And so that evening, it was a dark, uh, calm sea. And usually they would see the water hitting the iceberg and you could see the white um, breaking water. And that's how you would be able to tell something. So as soon as Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee, they were in the crow's nest, as soon as they saw it, they called down. Um, Murdoch ordered hard to starboard, which means left turn. Robert Hitchens turned his wheel to the left as quickly as possible. And that was at 1137. And one of the things Cameron did, which was cinematography at its best, uh, the real Titanic hits the iceberg at 1137 and it founders at 220 in the morning. So it's two hours and 43 minutes. If you start a stopwatch in Cameron's movie when they hit the iceberg, to the moment the very end of the ship disappears out from under Jack and Rose, it's two hours and 43 minutes. It's the exact amount of time that the ship sank in. Wow. And not a lot of people know, knew that fact. And so um, we thought it was a quick movie, but that was reality. That was very real on, on, on the angles. So when you see the water coming up the hallways, that is a pretty accurate representation of, of what it could have looked like. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, now I, I don't know if this could be fact or fiction, um, but I read somewhere that there was a an optical illusion that if they would have kind of heeded to what they saw with the optical illusion, that they would have been able to kind of, you know, reverse course or head out sooner. And it didn't really ha happen it was, or it was ignored. Is that true? It, like what happened with that? Someone has come up with what they call mirage theory. It was uh, um, what you're talking about, the optical illusion. And it has some merit to it. And some people definitely uh, think that that could have been a possibility. 
um, there's a group that subscribes to it and, and some that say, well, I don't see that happening at that point in that time in the year. So um, yes, it's a very good theory and no, it has not been disproven yet. So, um, uh, so uh, let's talk about who was on board, the captain, um, talk about the crew. Like, were they, you know, were they as well seasoned? Were they the um, kind of, were they a group that were, were able to kind of traverse these waters and it would be no problem, especially for something like this? Had they, had they steered anything? I mean, there wasn't anything like this, but somewhere close to it where you're like, okay, we're in good hands right now because we have captain so-and-so who's going to be on board here. Uh, is Was that all the truth? And this was just, you know, it, it's just a freak occurrence. Captain Smith was the Commodore of the White Star Line. He was the one who was the considered the best of their captains. And he was chosen to do the maiden voyage. His first officer was William Murdoch. And Captain Smith, as soon as the ship got back to England, that was going to be his final voyage. He was retiring. So Murdoch was on board, and it was believed that he would be the next in line to be the captain of uh, Titanic. The second officer was Charles Lightoller, and Lightoller would have moved up as well, quite possibly. Um, one of the things that these officers do is when you're on duty for X number of hours and you rotate, uh, you get experience running the ship while you're in charge, while you're the officer of the watch, so to speak. And um, of course, usually your first uh, responsibility, if there's a major problem, you contact the captain because the captain is the one that makes the ultimate decisions on things like that, on many things. But minor decisions, you know, the officer of the watch would make. So they had an excellent crew. They had a well-seasoned crew. They had an experienced crew. Um, none of them panicked, even though they were faced with incredible uh, a situation in front of them. Titanic was half full. This is what a lot of people don't understand. There was um, 2,208 people on board, but there were half the cabins were empty. It could have been much worse. Um, the lifeboats, there's always criticism about the number of lifeboats. The British Board of Trade regulations had um, booked ships according to tonnage, and they were rated that way. Smaller ships had X number of lifeboats. Bigger ships had X number of lifeboats. Even larger had to have um, more lifeboats. They got to where 16 was the maximum number, but what they did not do was consider that you get to the mega ships, they're going to hold a lot more people. And they had not had a chance to come in and put the new number of lifeboats on board. So Titanic had 20. They had four above the minimum. But as Rose eloquently says to Mr. Andrews in the movie, there's lifeboat space for about half. Mm -hmm. So and it's it's fascinating when you you see the historical wreckage. You know, of course, you see, we see the movie. So you kind of get a little bit of a picture. Um, so you have you have a well-seasoned captain and it takes basically, oh, there's an iceberg and within what, one minute, right? That was about it, right? So there's point of impact. There's really nothing they can do at that point. Now, uh, where when you talk about the point of impact on the, the ship and how it went down, 
Because as we see, of course, water seeps in and it, it capsizes and it heads like I, I'm, I'm trying to view this as you get into a car accident and your car kind of gets dinged up in the front, but it doesn't get punctured on the inside where you start to fill up with water or fill up with anything. So that's just the way it happened that it filled up. And then because of that, it caused a lack of buoyancy and went down. Right. Is that essentially what how that happened? Bottom line, let me get a visual aid real quick. Sure. Got the visual aid backdrop here. <laughs> I like that. I did get a chance one time that uh, I, I was at a science center. They had a large ice, like it, it was how you would feel about the the ice uh, the iceberg and how cold it was. And you know, it's it was incredible uh, going to see a lot of the Titanic things at a science center years ago. This is uh, a presentation I did at a school. A teacher did a three D print of Titanic for me. Oh, that's excellent. What One of the things that the Titanic had that was unique is it had these watertight bulkheads. They called them watertight compartments. And there were a number of them across the bow. And Andrew's design was so unique. If you think of something hitting straight on and it punctures one of those compartments, it would fill up that one compartment, but it would not bleed over into the, the two adjacent uh, compartments. He made this ship so incredible that if it punctured directly on a wall and filled up two compartments, um, it still would, would be afloat. It would still would not founder. His ship was so remarkable that it could fill up any four the, of the first five. Um, could fill up all four and it would still, it would be, I'm trying to do it at the bottom of my picture. It would still be sinking low in the water like this, but it would not sink the ship. And when the iceberg came along, it was more of a glancing blow. Oh, okay. And all it did was scrape rivets. And the openings were very tiny. Um, the actual opening size, the hole, if you were, if it were to have been one hole instead of these little thin lines, uh, would be about the size of a refrigerator door. If that had been in one compartment or bordering two compartments, Titanic would have just been an interesting story. So it was, it was kind of like hitting a guardrail in a and car like accident. Hitting a guardrail, excellent. And it scraped along the side and it caused five to begin to fill. They know how fast the water went in because of um, Andrew's statements of what's been filled by how much time. And they were able to, you know, to determine that. And when Andrews determined the ship would founder, that's when they started launching the lifeboats. So two hours and 40 minutes it took to sink the whole, th from point of impact to captains going down with the ship. 243, exactly. Man, it's how fast that was. And how cold was it? Because, you know, we've seen the, the, the with the movie and the, they, they did the breath with how cold it was, because even though the water was, it was kind of like a hot tub. Was it really below freezing out there? Speculation from 28 degrees to 33 degrees, the cold of the water. Wow. Uh, it's saline, it's salt water, so it would it would not form an ice sheet on top of it unless it dropped much deeper, uh, much lower in the temperature. Um, so it was definitely what we would consider freezing. And so w were more people dying of hypothermia than just drowning? Exactly. Okay. That's the masses uh, were hypothermia. 
I, I'm recording this. It's 27 degrees outside here in Ohio, so it's uh it's about the about the same there. Um, but uh, so yeah, that just how that went down, and I, I guess looking, you we were mentioning the passengers, mentioning the lifeboats. Um, you, you see the early footage of the Wright brothers and their airplane and trying to get the aircraft or trying to get it right, and it's like, is this going to work? Is this going to work? I guess uh, the next question is, we see what happened with the Titanic. And I, I guess they probably looked, all right, back to the drawing board. What do we have to do different that's going to prevent something like this? So what were some innovation that happened in the next line of these these freighters or these luxury cruises that they were able to improve upon that this was not going to happen or at least try not to have that happen again? One of the things is about these watertight compartments is they only went up so high in the ship. So after Titanic, they started taking them all the way up. If you ever go to a Navy ship, for example, or a ship that you have, uh, what is it? The Willa Cather ship in Cleveland. We, we do have the William Mather. William Mather, that's what that mm -hmm. is. If you walk through the William Mather, you can see the watertight bulkheads and you have to walk through those narrow doors all the way throughout the ship. Um, so when Titanic began to fill with water, it began to sink by the bow and the water would pour into the next compartment fill that up and pour into the next compartment sort of like an ice cube tray filling up it fill up one compartment and overflow into the next so extending those watertight walls all the way up was a great innovation there were a series of inquiries one was held in america one the american one was led by senator william alden smith of michigan and he asked questions of everybody that they brought in. It was a, a, a great inquiry. Part of it was held in New York and part of it was held in Washington. And they passed laws from that inquiry. One of them was that any ship that landed at an American port had to have enough lifeboat space on it for every passenger and crew member on the ship. So they could not overflow um, with the ship's population anymore. You had to have enough lifeboat space. And subsequent things were passed. If you remember having a fire drill when you were in school and you did your tornado drill where you sat in the hall and put the book over your head, um, those came from Titanic legislation, um, which basically said people need to know what to do in the event of an emergency. Um, the International Ice Patrol was formed and they would help notify and inform of ice in those areas to warn ships because the technology was not there. Radar came along later on and that made it so much better. Um, the other thing that it came, if you ever go on a cruise in today's age, the first thing that you do before you even leave the harbor is you have a muster drill. You are told where your lifeboat station is you have somebody you will check in with and you will get in a series of lifeboats after you check in, in the event of the order of evacuation. They require everybody to go through that. That is from legislation from the Titanic disaster. Wow. Well, and I mean, we, we've still experienced shipwrecks. We've still experienced some things and those are, um, I, uh, it, it not necessarily, you know, some of them can be mechanical air, some are pilot air. Um, but uh, this was just one of those, this, this was truly a freak occurrence. Um, 
especially when we kind of we've heard about how icebergs where oh no it's not that big on the outside it's just but then you realize how massive it is below and you know we've we've learned a lot in this case and it's a it's it's fascinating because like i said we're on 111 years since it's going on here in april and uh i I believe was it the the day of the sinking was that when fenway park opened is am i it was they had a they had a ball game on that sunday at fenway park the opening Uh, day oddly enough yeah so so fenway park is as old as the sinking of the titanic um but there's been so much intrigue over this that uh, the movie that came out in 97 is not the only movie that they've made several movies including a couple in the 1950s and uh at least in the 50s came out was a night to remember yes based after that book they made another one, SOS Titanic, which had Barbara Stanwyck and Clifton Webb, and a young Robert Wagner is in that movie. Okay. I think Robert Wagner's 90 now, so that puts some age on that movie. Uh, they made a couple in the 70s. One was um, uh, Titanic, and it starred David Warner and a young Helen Mirren, and uh, she plays uh, a, a steward, and um, a cabin steward, and is just excellent in that job. She's excellent in everything she does, of course. Um, but it was told from the Lawrence Beasley perspective. Uh, Raise the Titanic was from Clive Cussler's book. He wrote that book based on thinking that the ship had, had gone down in one piece, that it did not split up. It's totally fiction, but Sir Alec Guinness plays a role in that movie that everybody needs to see his acting. It is the epitome of a fantastic actor. Um, the role he played it was just a few minutes long but it was fantastic and then they did a CBS miniseries that was uh, the historians just wince when we even think about it because you know the movie starts and you have your list of these are the errors and you're six minutes into the movie and you've already used two sheets of paper Um, it had tremendous errors different the wrong people making wrong quotes it had Tim Curry in it a lot of people love Tim Curry's roles, but this was a bad role for him where he assaulted a passenger as a steward of Titanic. And so that CBS miniseries is sort of pushed back. We don't talk about that that much. Yeah, that's uh, but it's it's incredible that all these years that we we still talk about this. And then finally, like we opened up the conversation in the, you know, in the mid 1980s is Bob Ballard. And having Cruz head down there, was that just the the point where we finally got the correct coordinates for it or that we had the technology that we can really head down to the bottom of the sea and 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 find this and find some of these remnants? There had been several attempts to find Titanic. Jack Grimm was a Texas A&M person. He was an oil person in Texas, and he funded several expeditions to try to find Titanic. And he was not successful. Um, Ballard was working with the Navy, and they were really looking for two submarines that had gone down on the Grand Banks. They were looking for the USS Thresher and the USS Scorpion. And so to cover up what they were doing, they claimed they were going to find Titanic. They enlisted the French help, um, Ifremer, and Jean-Louis Michel was in charge of that their effort. And um, lo and behold, they were at the end of their expedition in 85 when they came upon wreckage. 
two of the people who were in that room that night. One was Tom Detweiler. Tom was on our 98 expedition to recover the big piece. And he has expressed interest in being there at our conference in this coming August. And William Lang, you know, some of us knew him as Billy Lang for a long time, but William Lang was in that room when it was discovered. And we're trying to see if we can get William there as well. And for the two of them to talk about the night of the discovery. Um, the technology was there. They had to invent a lot of special tools. They invented their little blue robot, Jason Jr., uh, to go and look and, and penetrate. And that was a good way to, to test that robot system. And um, we have always been able, as a nation, when we encounter problems, is we come up with solutions. We, in, we use technology, we use creativity, and they did that. Titanic's images they're just releasing right now on the internet. Woods Hole is releasing about an hour's worth of footage from that 86 expedition that's never before been shown. Um, each of the groups that have been down there probably have 100 or more hours of footage uh, that they don't show because it's not perfect, crystal clear, pure footage. You know, the camera may be a little crooked or there may be rust particles floating in the way. Um, but that's what the people wanted to see when, when I was a part of this. They wanted to see everything they could and all that they were shown were glimpses. So that all led up to the Cameron frenzy as well. Wow. Well, he had several actual scenes from one, uh, from his expeditions. It shows one time when he's going into the, uh, I think it's the dining area. The two doors have particles in front of them. And that's a real camera um, shot from the bottom of the ocean the particulates is what we call them the particulates in the water are stirred up by motion and it's like swimming in a on those little snow globes sometimes and uh, that's how you know that's real footage when they show that how much how much training has to go into an expedition like that because i, I yeah i've heard about how the brooklyn bridge how a lot of the create makers of the brooklyn bridge had the bends and when you go way far down at that point, you know, it's, it's not good. So I, I'm assuming that training, it's got to take years, right? The expedition that I was on, we had the best of the best out there. We had people who had been working in um, water exploration from Ifermere, and that was their career. Um, for me, with my ROV, I actually took it out on a lake down in South Carolina that's 300 feet deep, and we were powering it down and, and viewing things on the bottom of the lake. So I had some test runs, but to get down to two and a half miles where the pressure down there is 6,200 PSI, compare that to your tires, which are 42 PSI. Um, it's a different environment. It really is. Are you afraid your eyeballs are going to pop out? I mean, seriously. Well, a diver can't go down that deep. That's nowhere near, uh, you know, divers are limited way, way farther up. Divers can go down to a little over 300 feet sometimes. Um, deep divers can do a little bit more with practice. But everybody that's at Titanic is in a huge manned submersible. The three that have, excuse me, four now that have been to the wreck, the Russians have two of them, Mir 1 and Mir 2, which you see in Cameron's movie. Um, Woods Hole has Atlantis, 
which is um, there white with a red top to it. Alvin, excuse me, Alvin. Atlantis was the ship it was on. Alvin can go down. And now they have Ocean Gate with a very recent um, in, introduced to this idea. And it's called Titan. And Titan has been down a, uh, several dives and is planning on going back this summer. And uh, you can be a mission specialist with Ocean Gate and go down to Titanic, but the cost is a little, a little bit more than I have. It's two hundred fifty thousand dollars to be a mission specialist to die. Uh, just a couple of bucks. Why not? Just... Save up a year, you'll be all set. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I might have to skip that one, but I'll uh, make sure I'll be the first to watch it on TV when I see it. But uh, Bill, this has been fantastic. This has been excellent uh, for our listeners who want to know a little bit more that uh, things we weren't able to get into here in this podcast. Uh, uh, do you have work out there that they can find or any other work? doesn't have to be Titanic related. Well, uh, get, uh, get those plugs out for us. The things that I have is a website, voyagesexplorertitanic.com, voyagesexplorertitanic.com. On it, it promotes the book that I wrote, which tells the story of raising this. Uh, the name of the book is Our Story, Celebrating the 20th Anniversary of the 1998 Titanic Expedition. And it's told uh, by me and with excerpts from other people that were on the, the expedition with us. It's a very well uh, received book. We also have information about Titanic Con 2023, which is the August conference that I mentioned, where two of the days we talk about raising this piece behind me. We have family members, uh, Frank Goldsmith Jr. has um, said he's coming. His father was nine-year-old Frankie Goldsmith on, Smith on the ship, and he's got family stories to tell. And we're trying to get several others that uh, can make it. We're going to invite Joan Randall, whose mother was Louise Pope, Louise King Pope, and uh, just a handful of others that, that have been at our conferences in the past. Um, so it'll tell about that conference. Registration, early registration has started. Um, March 1st, we open it for anybody that wants to go. And we're only going to have 250 seats and we've already got 22 taken up already. So uh, a lot of people will be at this, especially the third day. We've talked with one, two, three, five actors already through their representatives. Uh, one of them is definitely wants to be there. And um, we haven't got a, a, a definite commitment yet, but we're hoping he'll he'll say yes. And that's Lewis Abernathy, who played Mr. Bodine. You know, like Anesthesia, the Russian girl. That was his line in the Cameron movie. And he's got a unique presentation he can make if he would like to do it. Because not only was he in the Cameron movie, but Cameron did another movie shortly thereafter called Ghosts of the Abyss, which was shown in IMAX and in 3D and was an incredible um, documentary, so to speak, going deeper into the ship. And the visual imagery in 3D is just pristine. It was uh, incredible. But Mr. Abernathy was in that as well. So he could talk about the specialness of being out there for Ghosts of the Abyss. Um, so we've talked to several. And um, I know we're not going to get a Winslet or a DiCaprio. They're probably beyond our ability level to bring them in. Um, Maybe a Billy Zane, though. Well, we're hoping for Billy Zane. Mm -hmm. We hope for Billy Zane. We hope for Frances Fisher, who was Rose's mother. She is an incredible actress. A lot of people know her for being the hateful Ruth 
in that movie. But if you watch her in several of her other performances, like Unforgiven, she shows the range of her acting ability and just all that she can do. And I would love to, to talk to her about how she got into the, Ro the Ruth character. Billy Zane, you mentioned, uh, he was in Tombstone, one of the great Westerns of our generation. Um, but Billy Zane was obnoxious and mean and the, the, the bad guy. But there are times that his acting is so strong that you actually feel sorry for him, that you develop some of those feelings that, that wow, you know, I'm feeling sorry for the bad guy. That shows me what kind of an actor he truly is. He's a tremendous actor. Well, Gloria Stewart, who played the old lady, and uh, she, here's <clears throat> fun fact for my audience, is that her husband, uh, until he passed away, was Arthur Sheikman, who was a, <clears throat> one of Groucho Marx's main writers. And it, it, she, it, he, she he was, was in several of the Groucho, the, the Marx Brothers movies, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. It, Titanic and, was unique because Gloria Stewart and Kate Winslet both were nominated for an Oscar for playing the same person. The same role. It's an, it's amazing. Yeah. Gloria Stewart, I, one of my uh, po uh, podcast guests, uh, used to work at Groucho's house in his final years. And he was, he was like, there was Aaron Fleming was uh, the Groucho's girlfriend and kind of caretaker. And there's a lot of stories about her, but uh, uh, Steve Stolier was working in the house and Groucho would be like, uh, Gloria Sheikman's coming over. And he didn't think two things about it. It's like, oh, it's it's one of Groucho's old friends and his wife. And it's like, no, it's Gloria Stewart who ended up, you know, having a great career, but was still active and acting. And she lived to be 100 years old. And uh, and speaking of 100, nearly 100 was the final surviving member of the Titanic who passed away back in, what, 2009 was two months, well, like two months old on the ship. <laughs> she was nine weeks old. She was the youngest recovered and the last to go. Wow. And, wow. That's you, did, just... you may not know this, but she got into a point where she was going to have to sell off a lot of her Titanic memorabilia in order to keep her in a facility that could take care of her her last few years. And uh, two people stepped forward, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, and provided, they donated money to keep her from having to sell her Titanic things. Wow. That was classic. Wow. Well, those are those are some great facts, Bill, here throughout this podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, yeah, go check out that book. And if you, if you folks are not doing doing anything in August, head on out to Vegas. Go check this out. Uh, uh, heck, I might have to check my schedule. I wouldn't mind getting a Spirit Airlines flight, heading out to Vegas and going to check that out and, and getting a chance to meet you in person. Bill, this has been great. And then thanks for doing this podcast. We'll come out and maybe you can do a podcast with one of our dignitaries and celebrities that we have out there. If not one of the actors, one of the people that were there the night it was discovered or something. I would love that. I'd work that out with you. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep in touch. Well, Bill, thanks again for doing this and uh, have yourselves a good one. And you mentioned that registration begins March 1st. This is going to be posted March 1st. So social media, if you're on Facebook, TitanicCon23 is the Facebook group. We ex Anybody can come to the conference. Uh, it's, it's not associated with any group. We just want people that want to come and experience a weekend of learning about Titanic. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate you having me on, Tony. Thank you.